0: Thank you. All right, let's start. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday School. I trust you had an encouraging and wishful Resurrection Day celebration. We're back in our study of our new quarter theme, The Messiah Arrives. Last week, we asked if the Old Testament has been building up and building up the coming of Messiah. Now that Messiahs will finally come, what is the appropriate response? We saw that there were a number of them, and we highlighted three. Various New Testament persons showed us we should be rejoicing, we should be telling others, and we should be paying serious attention, because Messiah has come. That's a huge deal. That's a great cause for joy, but it's also serious. We also saw last week that the New Testament is keenly aware of the Old Testament. Writers and the speakers of the New Testament will often quote an Old Testament text directly, and this is usually indicated by certain markers in our Bibles, such as, presenting those words in all capital letters. You always want to pay attention to how the New Testament draws upon the Old Testament so that we can understand the New Testament author's intent. We also looked specifically at the word Christ. How is the term Christ related to the term Messiah? That's right. So Christ is simply the word Messiah in Greek. They both mean anointed one, but Messiah comes from Hebrew and Christ comes from Greek. So we want to be aware of that. Any questions about what we talked about last time? Okay. Now, before we move on in our study of the New Testament, we might ask, how do I know that the New Testament is true? Consider if someone asks you that question. In your mind right now, rehearse what you would say in reply. How do you know that the New Testament is true? Certainly, there are many parts to the answer to that question, but let's see if we can't identify the main parts of the best answer to such a question by going to the Bible itself. That's what we want to do today. Be assured, we can trust the New Testament and praise God that we have such a word. That's one of the blessings that uh, Paul describes in Ephesians 1. The revealed mystery has been given to us. So we ought to praise the Lord for that, and we can trust it. So here's our outline for today's class. We're going to basically look to answer these three different questions. Why should we trust the New Testament writers? How do we know that what we have today is actually what they wrote? And how do we know that the New Testament revelation is complete? Let's ask God's blessing on this time of teaching. Our great God, I pray that you would enable me to explain well and accurately what your word says. And I pray that it would encourage us, that it would embolden us, that it would equip us for the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's consider our first question. Why should we trust the New Testament writers? And to answer this question, we're going to go to 2 Peter chapter 1. So please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's towards the latter part of the New Testament. 2 Peter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 21. And this letter, just a quick note of background. This letter was written by the Apostle Peter. Forgive me if I say Paul. I know it's going to slip, but this is by the Apostle Peter shortly before his martyrdom. And in this letter, he exhorts believers to hold fast to the truth as declared by the apostles and to beware the coming of false teachers into the church. That's the primary message of 2 Peter. Hold fast to what we declare to you. Beware the coming of false teachers. Now let's see what Peter says in. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 21 in 2 Peter. By the way, that's page 1215 if you're using the Pew Bible. So follow along with me as I start reading from verse 12. Here's what Peter says. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Okay, we've read our text. Step one of our inductive Bible study method is to make observations. So let's do that. What are the these things to which Peter refers in verse 12? And as I ask you questions today, you can just go ahead and and speak the answers. Don't have to wait for me to call on you. What are the these things that Peter refers to in verse 12? Right, that's definitely part of it. He's talking about how, based on the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, they can add these qualities, or rather the spirits can add these qualities to themselves. Really, it we know that it's referring to the section that came before. He's referring back to something, and I, I believe it goes back to verse 2. The knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, everything pertaining to life and godliness, given through the true knowledge of Jesus. Verse 4, the previous are precious, like magnificent promises promises given in the revelation of Jesus. He's referring to those things. He says, these are the things I'm going to remind you of. They're the things that are necessary for your sanctification, for your walking in godliness, everything you need for your life. I'm going to remind you about them. Now, what reason does Peter give for reminding them, according to verses 12 to 15? Why does he want to remind them? Yes, in the back, is that a hand? Is that Dwayne? Okay. Why does he feel the need, or why does he want to remind them? That's right. He says that the time of my departure is coming. I want to remind you so that after I depart, you'll be able to remember. And you've already helped us understand the the sense of that term, departure. He's just euphemistically describing his own death. He says, I'm going to die soon. I, I want to remind you so that you know and can remember after I'm gone. Now, notice the shift from the use of the pronoun I to the pronoun we in verse 16. He says some things about this we. Now, who's the we? The antecedent is not directly given, but it is described. So notice what is said about this we in uh, verse 16 and following. He says, we made known to you, you believers, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. We heard the utterance from heaven on the holy mountain. And we have the sure prophetic word. We'll come back to the identity of that we in just a moment. Now, you may recognize the description of the event given in verse 17, since the event is also described in the Gospels. During what event was Jesus glorified on a mountain with God the Father declaring from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased? When did that happen in the Gospels? Yeah, Peter, James, and John. Yeah, we're referring to the Mount of Transfiguration, where a preview of Christ's kingdom glory was given to those disciples. So they're referring to that there. Now notice another pronoun shift in verse 19. Shift from we to you. To what? Would the you do well to pay attention? Says you should pay attention to this. Verse 19 says the prophetic word. Pay. You would do well to pay attention to the prophetic word. Now verse 19 itself is key in our section. We want to pay close attention to the syntax. If you're using the New American Standard, you may notice the words so and made are italicized. Now, can anybody tell me why they're in italics? Yes, this is very important. This is the opposite of what we might expect as normal English speakers. We think italics means emphasis, not in our Bible translations. Italics means that word is not present in the original language but it has been supplied by the translators to give us the sense of the meaning of, of the verse. Now, it doesn't mean that it's inaccurate necessarily. It just means that there's a, some element of interpretation from our translators trying to help us understand the sense of what otherwise might be confusing in the original Greek. Usually these, these are really helpful, but we always want to remember that there's some level of interpretation in adding extra words. More literally, the beginning of verse 19 says this, And we have more sure the prophetic word. And we have more sure the prophetic word. So notice then the flow of thought from verses 16 to 19. Verse 16, Peter says, We didn't make up our message or simply tell tales. We were eyewitnesses. Verse 17, we saw Jesus transfigured. Verse 18, we heard the voice of, of the father from heaven and verse 19 we have more sure the prophetic word now notice how peter describes the function of this prophetic word it shines like a lamp in a dark place or in dark places illuminating until the day the morning star arises in the hearts of his audience <clears throat> now notice that it's not the prophetic words that need light shined onto them rather they are the light that make everything else illumined. But what exactly does Peter mean by prophetic word? Notice, verse 20 continues by using the phrase, no prophecy of scripture, no prophecy of scripture. And Peter further clarifies that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of human interpretation or even human will. Rather, men were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak from god all right so we notice these details of the text let's proceed to step two which is interpretation what is peter's main exhortation in this passage what is this all centering around what idea Yes, it has something to do with the message of the apostles. What does he want them to do with that message? Yes, Roy. Right. So it's all about remembering the apostles' teaching and clinging to it, and it's tied in with scripture. And we'll tease out that concept a little bit more. But he says, remember the, remember the teaching. I want to remind you, because I'm not going to be around forever. So remember this teaching and hold fast to it. Now we are talked about the departure. He says the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. He's talking about his death. and so we can see why he would want them to cling to his teaching. Who are the we in verses 16 to 19? Right, so Peter, exactly, exactly. This has to be the apostles. They're the ones, even though they're not explicitly identified in the text, they are the only ones that fit the criteria. They were the specially appointed messengers by Jesus to give his gospel. They were eyewitnesses because they um, they were with Jesus in his ministry, and particularly Peter, James, and John. But yeah, James might have been, or I guess James would be martyred already by this point. Peter, James, and John were the ones who witnessed Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he's referring generally to the apostles. And recall what Jesus said about his apostles when it came to their being his witnesses, his special messengers. John 15, John 15 verses 26 to 27, Jesus said this to the apostles, when the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Shortly after that passage in John 16 verses 12 to 13, John 16 verses 12 to 13, Jesus said this to his apostles, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak in his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. So these are some pretty important guarantees Jesus was giving his apostles. He also said this in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Acts one, verse eight. This is right before his ascension. It tells his apostles that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So when Peter is saying, we apostles experienced certain things, we spoke in a certain way, there's this backdrop to it. Now, what is the prophetic word that Peter speaks of in verse 19? We saw it was connected with a phrase in verse 20. What is the prophetic word? It is the scriptures. It's the scriptures, primarily the Old Testament scriptures. That would be the scriptures that everyone had. That would be where the prophets spoke. We could summarize the authors of the Old Testament as being the prophets. So the prophetic word is another reference to the scriptures. And verse 20 makes that more explicit. No prophecy of scripture. Now, there's another element to that which we'll get to in a second, but he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, verse 19 itself is important, but we could translate it. Or was that a question, Danny? Okay. Verse 19 could be taken in different ways. And we're at least outline three options, and then I'll tell you which one I think is best. What does he mean by we have more sure the prophetic word? Well, option one, Peter is telling the believers that they can trust the Old Testament scriptures because of the eyewitness experience of the apostles with Jesus in the New Testament. So in this view, the idea is that the Old Testament scriptures might not have been trustworthy before. You might not have been able to believe them before. But now, because of the experience of the apostles, now those scriptures have been made sure. Now they can be believed. Well, this sense would diminish the authority of Scripture and elevate experience as a greater authority, which as we've already seen is the opposite of Paul's intent in this passage. He's saying, cling to the word, cling to our message. So that would make it wouldn't make sense for him to say, Oh, by the way, you couldn't do it before without experience. No, that can't be the sense of verse 19. So let's look at the other two options. Option two. Peter is telling them that. Though the Old Testament scriptures were already worthy to be believed, the apostles' experience is further confirmation of the scriptures' trustworthiness. So, in this view, the already sure scriptures were made more sure by the apostles' eyewitness testimony. All right, that's an option. And then option three Peter is telling the believers that. Though the apostles' eyewitness experiences do add credibility to the apostles' message, there is a more sure witness to the truth of what they declared, and it's the scriptures themselves. It's the Old Testament scriptures. So in this sense, if we take this as the sense, scripture is specifically contrasted with experience as a more trustworthy foundation for knowledge. It says, yes, we had this experience, but there's something more sure. It's the prophetic word. I believe option three is our best choice here. As I said, the whole point of this passage is an exhortation for the people to hold fast to the apostles teaching. If the word of the apostles is to be a foundation for believers uh, and to be an authority for truth, to be the authority for truth then any other appeal to uh, another authority outside the revelation of God would be to contradict the exhortation. In essence, Peter's argument is, cling to the message we've given to you since it accords perfectly with the previously revealed and totally trustworthy scripture of the Old Testament. Moreover, as I pointed out, the grammar of verse 19 does not need us to supply words like, so or made more sure. Rather, the apostle says, and we have more sure, the prophetic word. And we saw that the end of verse 19 says that it's scripture that illumines everything like a light, not experience, not even the experience of walking around with Jesus. Scripture is highlighted as the foremost authority and the foundation for truth. Now, even if we go with option two, we say, well, uh, he's saying that it was already true, but it's been made more more uh, sure, it's been confirmed. We could take the sense as an option two, but even if we do, we must acknowledge that, and I've sought to emphasize this in our Sunday school classes, the ultimate foundation for truth is not experience, not even the experience of walking around with Jesus. It's God himself via his revelation. God must be the ultimate authority in our lives. He cannot lie. Therefore, his word must contain the same authority as he himself does. Appealing to any other authority over God's own word doesn't make logical sense. I think we could even say it's blasphemous. Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail When you are judged, you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. The scripture does not need outside proofs, it's self sufficient. It proves itself. When we read it, when we hear it, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit causes us to understand it, the word speaks to fundamental realities in our hearts, those kind of realities that Romans 1 and 2 describe that God is the creator, and he created me. I owe him worship and obedience, and God has given forth a righteous law and standard, but I've not met that standard. We know these things to be true. But apart from the, the working of the Spirit through his word, we suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So this is not to say that other parts of reality do not confirm the truthfulness of the scriptures. They do, and they give us even more reason to believe and l- Um, more accountability for not believing. Peter says here, the apostles were eyewitnesses. They were given supernatural ability to remember and communicate Christ's message. They had no reason to make up their message. They gained nothing for themselves by doing so, except suffering and martyrdom. But even without these extra supports, the word would still be true and demanding of our belief. Hebrews 4 says, as you know, the word is living and active. It cuts between the soul and spirit. It convicts. It brings to our minds what our hearts already know is true. Now, the presuppositional apologist, we've talked about classical versus presuppositional apologetics. He would describe what I'm saying in this way. God's word shows us Fundamentally, that no other worldview other than a biblical worldview can make sense of reality, especially the reality that we know in our hearts. Danny, do you still have a question? Okay. Mm hmm. Oh, we're actually just about to talk about that. So, yeah, we'll, we'll deal with that question right now. There is a connection to something else besides the Old Testament scripture. Oh, we're going to talk about that, too. You guys are you're going right exactly where I want to go. So, yeah, because we have to ask the question, if the main point is pay attention to our words as the apostles, why is he talking so much about the Old Testament scriptures? If it's the apostolic revelation that he wants his audience to remember and defend, well, the reason he's he's uh, talking about the Old Testament scripture alongside the apostolic revelation is because he's equating the two. They're um, they're the same. They have the same quality and authority. They are both God's revelation. They are both scripture. The apostles realized that they were speaking scripture. So when he appeals to the Old Testament, he's saying, look, our new revelation accords exactly with the infallible, trustworthy Old Testament revelation. So cling to our words just as you cling to the Old Testament. Now, notice the the parallels that Paul is making between the Old Testament experience and the New Testament experience. Back in verses 20 to 21, he says, In the Old Testament, no prophet ever gave his own message or interpretation. But in verse 16, he had said that was the same thing for the apostles. We did not declare a clever tale. Peter also says, The audience ought to pay attention to the Old Testament scripture as a lamp that illumines everything. But back in verse 3, he said, The message that we gave you about Christ gives you everything that you need for life and godliness in the, the knowledge and power of Jesus. Also, in chapter 2, verse 1, we didn't read this verse, but we'll read it now. Look at what he says there. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Second Peter. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So we're seeing another parallel here. He says there were false prophets when God gave his authoritative Old Testament revelation. So now there will be false teachers now that God's new authoritative revelation has been given. And now to get back to what you were saying, Steve, even at the end of this letter, we see a direct reference to the apostolic teaching being scripture. Look at 2 Peter 3, verses 15 to 17. 2 Peter 3, verses 15 to 17. He's giving an exhortation here, and he's going to mention the writings of Paul. Look at verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Yeah. Just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some hard things to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now notice here, the reference that Peter makes the writings of the Apostle Paul mentioning that evildoers distort Paul's more difficult teachings in the same way as the rest of the scriptures. Now that's a key phrase, because if he says they distort it just like the rest of the scriptures, it means he's including Paul's writings in that set. He says they're part of the scriptures too. What the Apostle Paul wrote is scripture, Peter is, is asserting. And if it's the That apostles' message was Scripture by the same principle. Peter's message, and certainly we align that with the rest of what he said in chapter 1, Peter's message is also Scripture. The apostles knew they were writing Scripture. Now, to give you one more really striking example, consider 1 Timothy 5.18. Actually, turn there. 1 Timothy 5.18. So just back up a little bit in your Bibles. To back up something that, uh, an assertion he makes in this section, Paul is going to quote two scriptures. 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. This is page 1189 in the Pew Bible. It's talking here about the compensation that elders in the church should receive, particularly those who teach. And this is what he says, verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul is quoting scripture here with two references, and the first reference you might see in your Bible is written in all caps, or small caps, and it's a reference to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.4, but the second reference is not in all capital letters. Where is it from? Well, if your Bible notes cross-references, it should direct you to a New Testament passage, Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where Luke records the words of Jesus, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, that's pretty amazing. An apostle, Paul, acknowledges that one of his associates, Luke, has written scripture with the same authority and trustworthiness as what was written in the Old Testament. So he can refer to both, as the scripture says. So all of this is showing us that the New Testament writers knew that they were writing scripture, they and their associates, those under their oversight. So back in 2 Peter 1, when Peter directs his audience to cling to the prophetic word as the ultimate authority, as the lamp which illumines everything, he means not only the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, the words of the apostles. The two are both scripture. The testaments confirm each other and are both to be used as the lamp until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. By the way, when Peter uses those phrases, the day dawning, what day does Peter have in mind? In what day will the... Will there be a dawn and a morning star rising in people's hearts? Uh, oh, what you're right, but what um, we can talk about salvation is taking place in various components. It's already taking place, it is taking place, it will take place. What kind of salvation are we referring to here? Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, this is the referring to the return of Jesus, the revealing of Jesus in his second coming. Uh, there's an, t- at least two references in Revelation to Jesus as the morning star. So he says, G- you need this revelation. You need to cling to it until Jesus comes. It will illumine everything until everything is illumined by the glory of Jesus. When he returns. So here's the exhortation from Peter, both to his audience and to us. Until Jesus comes and brings his kingdom, we've got to cling to his word, both in the Old and New Testaments, as the foundation for truth. We've got to guard against false teachers, of whom Peter says, or rather, Peter does not say that they might come. He guarantees they will come, just like they did in the Old Testament. To sum up the argument, then, in this passage, we're asking Peter, why should we believe and hold fast to your message? He does say we were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. We saw his glorification. We heard the confirming words of heaven. But more importantly, you can trust the self-proving scriptures that foretold and confirm our message. And just as those in the past spoke God's message, and not merely their own, So we, the apostles, have spoken to you God's new scripture to which you must hold fast as you do the Old Testament. So that's our first answer to our first question, how how can we trust the New Testament? But a related question, if it's the apostles' words that is scripture and that we must cling to, how can we be sure that what was originally given to the apostles has been passed down accurately to us today? After all, it's been almost 2,000 years. How could we expect the word to last? Let's consider our answer. Certainly we have a promise from Jesus regarding his word. What did Jesus promise about his word? Very good. Matthew 24, 35, also quoted in the other two gospels. He says, my words will not pass away. But how is this promise worked out in history i'm going to describe briefly the process that has taken place we've talked about this before back in year one quarter one i think when we were talking about the bible in general but let's remember again how we actually receive the scriptures this explanation i'm going to give you is based off of a couple different things partly what Answers in Genesis supplies in their curriculum, partly what the MacArthur Study Bible gives and how we got the Bible, an introductory section. And also there's an interview on the Gospel Coalition website with a textual critic named Dan Wallace. He's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He also supplies some really helpful information. And I combine all those things together for us to understand how did we receive the scriptures? Four steps to this process. First, inspiration. That is, God breathed out his word and caused human writers to write down his revelation as scripture. All the New Testament writers, or, or who, did, who did God give this to, this authority to? The apostles. And all the New Testament writers were apostles or apostolic associates, people under the oversight of the apostles. And these New Testament writers did not write as robots, who did not understand, but just transmitted God's message. It's not as if God was moving their hands and they didn't understand what was going on. Neither did the apostles and the apostolic associates cooperate with God in some sort of 50-50 arrangement where part of their message was human and part of it was divine. No, rather, God used the human author's thoughts, wills, and writing styles to communicate exactly what God desired to reveal. So, the word is 100% written by men, but also 100% written by God. The messages are, are both... Are, yeah, the messages are both exactly what the human writers intended to communicate and what God intended to communicate. There's no separation. That's the amazing um that's what's so amazing about the process of inspiration it was totally what the authors intended but yet it was totally what god intended i don't need to separate the two that's the first step second canonicity or canonization all the new testament books were recognized immediately as scripture after their reception received it from the apostles wow this is this is the word we've got to cling to this is scripture But in the centuries after 100 AD, when all the writings of the Bible had been finished, some Christians began to question whether certain books really were part of the New Testament, the new revelation from God, whether they were part of the canon, or whether certain other books ought to be added to the canon written by other people. Canon, by the way, just refers to a recognized and established set. So when we talk about the canon of the New Testament, the canon of Scripture, we're talking about the set of inspired books from God. Over most of the books of the New Testament in these first couple centuries after the Bible was written, there was no debate. Most of the books were recognized by all. But certain books were intensely scrutinized. And those who were studying them, the different church leaders and Christians, they were asking three primary questions. First, was it written by an apostle or an apostolic associate? Because they're the ones that God commissioned. Number two, does it agree with other already recognized scriptures? That goes back to our passage, right? And then number three, is there general agreement among Christians that the work is inspired? Have other people come to the same conclusion that I have, that yes, this is from an apostle? Yes, it agrees with other scriptures. So there was this discussion. There was this steadying. By the 300s and 400s AD, the debate was over. All the New Testament books, there was no, no more discussion Uh, There was was largely no more discussion. The 27 books that we have in the New Testament were universally recognized as inspired scripture. Now note that there was no single church council that established which books belonged to the New Testament. It wasn't in the Council of Nicaea. It wasn't in any other council. It was a process. It was a process of recognition that played out among the studies and discussions of various church leaders all over the Mediterranean over the first few centuries. Like I said, most of the works were... Not debated, and all the works were recognized as scripture initially, but there was some subsequent discussion. But the work, the canon was established um, by the 300s and the 400s. At the same time as the second step, there was another step taking place, and that is preservation. Preservation refers to the process of copying the scriptures so that they can be passed down and disseminated in the coming generations. And the original writings were written on papyri, or treated animal skins. And these materials don't necessarily last forever, especially papyri, which deteriorates quite easily. I mean, it's just paper, or something similar to paper. So copying the original letters and books of the apostles was essential. And there were no printing presses at that time, which means copying had to be done by hand. And we call handwritten documents Manuscripts. They had to copy the manuscripts by hand. Now, as different Christians received the handwritten copies, so the original writing would go out from an apostle, and there'd be a copy copy made of it. And then another Christian might receive that copy. That Christian would make new copies, or he'd have made new copies, and then those copies would be disseminated and passed down as well. Over time, some of the copies deteriorated, were destroyed, or were lost but many others remained. So from the initial reception of the scriptures all the way to the invention of the printing press around 1450 AD, the scriptures are being hand-copied and transmitted, disseminated. And many of these copies have survived, though thousands have, or then others have also been lost. Today, we have uncovered over 5,800 partial and full copied manuscripts of the New Testament books. Most of these copies are from after the year 1000 AD, but some of these copies are so early that they're within 25 to 50 years of the original text, Very, or copies sh- written very shortly after the actual work itself. The size of these manuscripts varies. Some contain only a verse or two, like the one that I have pictured for you, just a fragment of a verse. But the average size of a copied New Testament manuscript is over 450 pages. So big chunks of text. But these are just copies of the original Greek. Remember, the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. We also have around 10,000 manuscripts of the New Testament translated in Latin. And another 9,000 in various other languages like Coptic, Armenian, and Syrian. So tons of ancient and medieval copies of the New Testament. If we compare this number of manuscripts with other surviving manuscripts from around this time, like from other Greco-Roman writers, the difference is quite stark. The average Greco-Roman author has 1,000 times less surviving manuscripts than those for the New Testament. And of the manuscripts that do survive for these other authors, on average, they are no earlier than about 500 years after the work's original writing. To give you some examples, the best preserved ancient writer outside the Bible was the Greek poet Homer, and we have less than 2,400 surviving manuscript copies. And He's the best, and that's, what, like a tenth or even less than the copies we have for the Bible? To give you another example, on the opposite end, Tacitus, you may have heard of him, first century Roman historian, he has a grand total of three surviving manuscripts, (laughs) and none of them are from before the year 900 AD. So that gives you a sense of just how much more um, copies and how much um, more useful copies because they're so much closer to the text we have for the Bible these manuscripts, the New Testament. Now, part of this process of preservation is not simply the copying, but also textual criticism. Now, what is textual criticism? Well, textual criticism is the science of comparing copies of a text with each other and then noting the variations in those copies in order to accurately reconstruct the original text. Don't confuse textual criticism, which is a good thing, with what is called higher criticism. Higher criticism of the Bible. Higher criticism is not good. Higher criticism tries to to use man's wisdom to prove that the Bible is not true. Oh, Moses didn't really write this, or, oh, this was redacted, this was edited. That's what higher criticism does. Textual criticism uses manuscript comparison to prove what the original form of the biblical text was. What does this process look like? What does textual criticism look like? Let me give you a simple example. Let's say we have the following three sentences. They're all copies of an original sentence. Take a look at them. By comparing these three sentences, it's relatively straightforward to see what the original original sentence was. What must have been the original sentence on which these three copies are based? not A itself. None of these are the original. What must the original have been? I think I heard someone say it. Justin. Justin took his friends to the beach. You can see slight variations within these three. None of them are exactly that, but they they share commonalities. And it's based on those commonalities and, and minus the differences that we come back to the original. These are the kinds of variants that we see in biblical manuscripts. Most of the variants in copies of the the thousands of copies we have are insignificant and easily identified. They're spelling errors or variants that don't make sense. Like this one, Justine took his friends. That doesn't make sense, even though Justine is is a real name. It's not a man's name. So they're spelling errors, variants that don't make sense, or variants that don't substantially change the meaning of the text like using the word shore instead of beach. Less than 1% of textual variants make sense and do change the meaning. But these variants never appear in passages that affect any core teachings of the New Testament, which is why I've said before, um, 99.999% of the Bible is totally sure. And of that small fraction that remains, it doesn't affect any significant doctrine. So we can be confident. Oh, I actually do want to say this also. The science of textual criticism really took off during the Renaissance, around 1350 to 1550 AD, when ancient manuscripts became more available in Europe, especially Western Europe, and when the printing press made copying and studying those manuscripts a lot easier. So today, 500 years later, or nearly 500 years later, we can be more confident than ever That by comparing the surviving manuscripts, paying attention particularly to which ones came earliest, we can be confident that we have the same text that was originally given by the apostles. But what good is having the original Greek if you and I don't understand or speak Greek? So we need one more step, and that's transmission. The Bible had to be transmitted and translated into the vernacular languages of people around the world. And we can thank the Lord that that's been done for our language. Going back to people like John Wycliffe in the 1300s, William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale in the 1500s, they translated the New Testament into English for the first time. And our translations have only gotten better since then. Today, our English translations are extremely good. But we never want to lose access to the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, but Greek for the New Testament, because they serve as a necessary check to even the best of translations. Translations we have are accurate and trustworthy, but we don't want to lose the original languages. So we see our Lord's promise fulfilled. His word is not passed away. And we can be confident that the word that he gave to his apostles by his spirit is the same as the one that we have. But is there more? Is there more revelation in the Old and New Testaments? Could God be speaking something new? today certainly many have claimed this certain false teachers and even people that we would count as true brethren saying that they receive visions or revelation or a prophecy directly from god yeah i think you know my answer to this question i won't give you an exhaustive answer today but let's just look at ephesians 2 verses 19 to 22 turn over there this is i think a go-to verse for handling this issue Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Just in context, Paul speaking to Gentiles, talking about that they are now included in God's salvation plans. They are inheritors just like the Jews. This is what he says in verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and the spirit. Uh, This section, verse 20 is the one I want to highlight the Gentile believers. It says have been built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those two groups provided the foundation that they're now being built on. So the foundation has already been laid the other work of building is happening now foundation's complete so then what further need is there of new apostles and prophets those who would give further revelation there is none that was the role of the apostles and prophets to provide the foundation there therefore is no need for further revelation and this makes sense with what we saw in second peter chapter one right peter didn't say i'm about to die so perk up your ears from my apostolic successor. Listen to whatever revelation God gives him. No, that's not what Peter said. Instead, he said, I want to remind you of the truths I taught you so that when I'm gone, you can remember them and you can defend them from those who claim to have a new teaching. This is what we're still to do today. Rather than look for or accept a new revelation, Peter says, be on guard hold fast to what you were given, guard against any sort of new revelation from God, supposed revelation from God. Now, that's all I'll say on the subject right now, but we did do two whole lessons on this subject back at the beginning of the course. So if you go back to our year one, quarter one lessons, God's word is complete and don't change God's word. You can find more information there. So how have we answered the questions that have been posed today? Let's review Why can we trust the New Testament? More than because the authors were supernaturally empowered eyewitnesses of Jesus, we can believe because the trust where the Old Testament confirms the New. And the New Testament itself speaks to the deep reality in our hearts. God has opened our eyes to recognize the truthfulness in all that the New Testament declares. How can we be sure that the New Testament we have today is the same as the original? Well, God has inspired, canonized, preserved, and transmitted his word to us today. Textual criticism gives us supreme confidence that we have the original text even via our copies. Is there more revelation beyond the New Testament? No, there isn't. This Testament, along with the Old Testament, is what God has told us to cling to. It is the living and active salvation and sanctification bringing ever fresh word if you want a new word from the lord or if you want a fresh word from the lord as uh, as someone once said just open your bible because it's ever fresh we need not and cannot have any other revelation from god questions about what we've talked about today yes just steve yeah please (laughs) <laughs> All right, well. Yeah, uh, if you remember. Oh, go ahead. Mm. Mhm. 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 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay thanks steve yeah so yeah we will sometimes see the note in our bibles most reliable manuscripts have this or don't have this and there are different methodologies as as to what is the best way to handle the manuscripts Uh, two of the main ways have been what do the majority of the texts say but another approach emphasizes more the earlier texts. There's some decision-making that needs to be done with those texts. I know that one work that's been recommended by a number of people that I've heard, even here at the seminary, is James White's work on the King James Controversy, where he talks a lot about textual criticism and um, the decisions that have been made or that should be made when it comes to textual criticism. But certainly we always want to remember that commentators and uh, the works of interpretation – by humans since the the works have been written they're not infallible so we want to be thoughtful about that we can trust our translations and we do want to take the benefit that we can get from commentaries but we even want to test what they say other questions or comments yeah Mhm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'll just repeat it briefly. So Revelation talks about don't add to this prophecy. If you do, you add curses. If you if you take away, you're taking away your blessings and your your spot in the New Jerusalem. And that's often been used as a way to say, look, the New Testament canon is closed, but Mormons and others might say, well, there were similar things said in the Old Testament, and there's been new revelation since then. I think maybe that passage is not the best one to go to because I think you can make a strong case that. He's referring to his specific prophecy, to the work of revelation. But when you combine those words with what else is said in the New Testament, uh, even the passage that we looked at in Ephesians, the principle there certainly applies to the New Testament, which is don't don't add to this word. It, in a logical way, we can say, okay, this is a revelation about the last things. What, what more can there be? If this was the the last or uh, the last part of the human experience to talk about, w- what more could be added? But that would probably not be the first place that I would want to go, because I think you can make a case that he's that John is talking about his specific prophecy. Good question, though. I think we have maybe time for one more question or comment. Yes, yeah, okay. Yeah, what's the other one? Yeah, thanks, Steve. That's, that's really useful. Yeah, even in the, the studies in archaeology that's done with ancient texts, we might find a piece or a whole book of the New Testament right alongside other books. Just because they're there in that context doesn't mean that they were all accorded the same authority at that time. Certainly, we can see an example of this with the Apocrypha. You look at the early church fathers, um, they will talk about the Apocrypha works, books like uh, First and Second Maccabees, and they'll say, these are helpful, but they're not inspired. So they would often be circulated among Christians, but there was always the understanding that this is not on par with the rest of the scriptures. Now, some people looked at that combination and the Catholic church eventually did this and they say, wait a second, we think that they are on par because they were always circulating together, but that wasn't the case. And even people in the early church were explicit about that. Jerome, ironically, most explicit in his translation of the Vulgate, where he gave the Apocrypha as part of the his Bible translation, moving from the original languages into Latin. He included the Apocrypha with a preface that says, this is not scripture. But of course, the Catholic Church says, no, it actually is scripture, and the Vulgate is the inspired version. So I don't know how they how they managed that, but that's what they did. All right, so that's it for today. Uh, I did want to mention one other, one other application question. A lot of the questions we've been talking about today have to do with application, but one I'll just mention briefly related to what we've talked about. In our evangelism, should we be sharing with others about how credible the apostles were or how the New Testament has been faithfully preserved via textual criticism? It's fine for us to share those things. They can be helpful. They can be helpful for starting a conversation about the gospel, dealing with superficial objections, but let us beware on relying on outside evidence and arguments and getting bogged down in unprofitable discussion. Because what we really want to share with people is the message about Christ, the message about their need for a savior from their sin to be saved from the wrath of God. So if you find yourself simply answering objections and never really getting to the gospel, you should say something like this to that person. My friend, there is an answer to your objection. And we can come back to it later. But let's talk about the bigger issue that the Bible discusses, and that is your heart. Your heart does not want to acknowledge God. It wants to suppress the truth so that it can live its own way. Arguments that confirm the Bible should never be substituted for the Bible. Give people the word of God, because that's the ordained means of opening their eyes. If dealing with a superficial objection will give you an opportunity to share the message of Jesus, well and good. But if it just leads to ongoing debate, cut to the heart of the issue with the sword of the Spirit. Next week, we introduce ourselves to the New Testament gospel writings and the so-called synoptic problem, which we'll see is not really a problem. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for these people. I pray that you'd build them up. Thank you that we can believe your word. Thank you for this revelation in the New Testament, that we do have this lamp along with the Old Testament so that we're not blind. We can see in this dark world until you come and light up everything. Thank you, Jesus, for coming in uh, your first coming. And thank you that you will come again. Help us to be faithful until then and to cling to your word, to be zealous for it, to defend it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. I'll see you next week.